Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all again. And I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 13. We're going to be continuing our sermon series on the parables from, some of the parables from Luke. And you can find Luke 13 on page 872 in the Bible provided for you in the pew. As you go through the parables, we're often excited because, as many of us notice, parables give us stories, right? And one of the things we like about parables is how they teach us using accounts of life that we can identify with. It's a great teaching method. But also, we have to confess that sometimes parables are a little confusing. They were confusing for the original hearers and also for us. And we need to keep in mind why the Lord does use parables. It's not just because it's a great teaching method using stories. One of the reasons they're difficult to understand is because Jesus wanted them to be difficult to understand. He tells us why he used, before we look at the passage today, he tells us why he was using parables. His disciples asked him that. In Luke chapter 8, this is not going to be on the screen, but listen to these words from Luke 8 beginning in verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he's talking about the parable of the sower here, he, that's Jesus, said to you, he, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, here it is, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And then he went on to describe the parable. What did he mean by that? Well, he's quoting another passage from, Jesus is quoting another passage from Isaiah where the truth is always before people, but some people are prevented from being able to see it. The parables were not just a way to teach stories so that we'd learn them better. They were also a way that Jesus brought discipline to the church, that he wouldn't speak plainly. He would speak in a way that it would be difficult to understand, and because of that, some would become upset, it would reveal their hearts, they really weren't for Jesus, and others would be drawn to it, showing that they really were for Jesus. So parables are complex, but they're rich and they're beautiful. And a couple weeks ago when we were in the parables with Jonathan, you might remember that he focused on two parables from Luke 18, talking about self-righteousness was one, and then the call to prayer is another. Um, today, we're going to look at a different one from Luke 13, 1 through 9, and this one's not incredibly comfortable. Well, what is it that Jesus wants us to hear? Listen carefully to the reading of God's Word from Luke 13, starting in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look. For three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, 
If it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the words of our God does stand forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we do come and we pray and we ask that you'd be with us. Open our eyes to see beautiful things in this portion of your word, to understand the parable, to see how you are at work in our lives, just as you are at work in the lives of those who heard this parable originally. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Where does your heart go when tragedy happens? Where does your heart go when you see a catastrophe? You realize it was only 31 days ago when the South Tower, the Champlain condo building, collapsed in Surfside City, Florida. Here it was at 1.25 in the morning. Most of the residents in that 12-story building on the beachfront were sleeping in their beds. Some of them were taking showers. Others were cooking a late dinner after getting home late. Some were watching TV. And at 1.25 a.m., the building gave way and 12 floors pancaked. If I understand correctly, the newest count is they have found and recovered 97 bodies from the rubble. There's still a question about one more possibility, but they've called off the rescue and the search. They've done as much as they can. And when you heard news of that building just falling in the middle of the night, and you saw reports and images on the screen, what went through your heart? What do you think about? There's usually common things we all wrestle with. Oh my goodness, that's horrible. I can't imagine that happening. Your heart breaks for them. First you want to know what happened. Then you want to know why did it happen. And then what do we want to know? We want to know who did what wrong. Right? Who did what wrong? Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's teaching a large crowd of people and Jesus is addressing this very thing because some people ran up to him, we see in the beginning of verse 1 here, and they're telling him if he had heard the news of what happened when some Galileans had had their blood spilled and mingled with sacrifices. We see that in verse 1. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What we understand about that is that here were these Galileans in Jerusalem, more than likely, and they were offering sacrifices to the Lord. And what happened is Pilate, for whatever reason, had them killed. And so in the middle of their offerings, their blood is spilled and mingled together. And they wanted to know if Jesus heard about it and what he thought. And so there's one tragedy that occurs. And Jesus brings up another one. He brings it up in verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam felled and killed them. So he's responding to one tragedy and he introduces another which was well known. People understood what was going on. We don't have this recorded anywhere else in Scripture, but this tower in Siloam is likely near the pool of Siloam in a place in Jerusalem. And for some reason, this tower fell and 18 people were killed. Others were hurt and many escaped unharmed. And so Jesus brings up these two tragedies. 
And he teaches us something because often we can, we can begin to wonder, our hearts wonder, is God anywhere near us in the midst of this? What's happening? Where's God? What's going on? And through his parable and describing the situation, Jesus helps us to see that God is at work showing us things even in the midst of tragedies. What's he showing us? We're going to look at three things. He shows us our reflexes. He shows us our assignments. And he shows us his devotion. Our reflexes, our assignments, and his devotion. Our reflexes are first. Through this tragedy, he shows us what our hearts immediately go to. We've already experienced it as we looked at just our own tragedy here in the U.S., in Florida. Because look at verse 2. And he answered them, that's Jesus, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? And he repeats the same thing in verse 4 when he said, do you think that they were worse offenders, those who were killed in Siloam, than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So one of our reflexes when tragedy happens is to criticize other people. You see it? That's in my heart. That's in your heart. That was in their heart. Jesus says tragedies reveal something in us, and they reveal we want to blame other people. See, what he's pointing out here is we have this default setting in our heart because of sin that when tragedy happens, we have this equation in our hearts that bad things happen due to living badly. Bad things happen because you lived badly. The tower fell on them because they were worse sinners than others. The ones that died, many escaped, but the ones that were killed, they must have been worse sinners. And those Galileans who were offering worship and sacrifices, perhaps they really weren't what they said they were, and God was judging them because they did something wrong. That's what our hearts just naturally do on their own. Say, something bad happened to you, what'd you do wrong? It's common throughout Scripture. Even the disciples, when they're walking with Jesus in John chapter 9, and they come across a blind man, if you're familiar with this story, they're walking, and here's a blind man on the side of the road, and the disciples say what to Jesus? Why is this man born blind? Who sinned? Him or his parents? And then when Job was suffering tremendously, and his friends come alongside him, you think particularly of Eliphaz who sits with him and what Eliphaz is trying to point out is to Job is no one ever suffers who does righteous things. So what did you do wrong? What are you not confessing? It's what's in us. We want to criticize others. But Jesus isn't saying in this that they were sinless people. What does he say? How does he respond to that? Verse 3, no, I tell you. Do you think they suffered, the Galileans suffered this way because they were worse sinners? No. And he goes on to say even more, and he's talking about the Tower in Siloam. Do you think they were worse offenders? No, they weren't. That's the wrong way to think about it. They weren't being judged for their sin. Jesus isn't saying they were sinless people. He was saying they're run-of-the-mill sinners like you and like me. And so Jesus is, is highlighting, do you see the challenge that you have? You live with this assumption. I live with this assumption that if I do it right, if I honor the Lord right, if I do his commandments, if I'm following through with Christian values, 
That's the secret to life not being very difficult. That these tragedies won't happen to us. See, one of the things, one of the reasons we get so enamored with watching tragedies on TV or, you know, think about it. When you drive on the road, on the highway, and there's an accident clearly off the side of the road, not impeding traffic at all, what do you do? You slow down and you rubberneck, right? Why? What happened? What was going on? I want to see it. Why is that in our hearts? One of the reasons is we want to understand why it happened so that we can assess it, make sure that we will be safe, and in many ways, what does our heart do? Yeah, that was a bad decision they made. I'd never make that decision. So we do it as a way to protect ourselves. And we're prone to look at it, and we want to find someone to blame. See, it's wrong to think we're doing well and we're healthy because we've done it right. When I was pastoring in South Dakota, and I think I've shared this story with you, I remember this young man who didn't go to church often, but he came to church one Sunday, and he was visiting with another family. He came occasionally with them. After the worship service, I talked to him a little bit, and then he went home, and he was going home on his motorcycle. And on his way home from the church, he had an accident on the interstate, and he was thrown from his bike, he landed on his head, he skid across the grass median, but he was okay. He was fine. He was sore and bruised, and his bike was messed up. But he came back to tell me later about what happened. He goes, wow, I can't imagine what would have happened if I hadn't gone to worship that morning. You see what he thought? And he meant it. I did the right thing, so I didn't deserve to have a tower fall on me. I did the right thing. I didn't deserve that. And so the Lord spared me. That's what happens in our hearts. Something bad happens, we criticize other people. It's their fault. You had it coming to you. What did you think was going to happen? The other thing is, if we don't criticize others, we criticize God. See, the religious criticize other people, and they say, you should have known better. You had it coming. This is what was going to happen if you continue doing that. The non-religious don't criticize other people. They criticize the Lord. They say, where was he in the midst of this? Why didn't he make this stop? He's either wicked or he's weak or he just doesn't care. And so we criticize either people or the Lord. And what does Jesus say? No. No. That's not it. Do you see what this tragedy has done? It has shown you your own reflexes. It has shown you that there's something going on, and what is, we're going to get to this in a minute, but what's Jesus' answer? No, that's not the problem, unless you repent. He's saying the problem is in you, and you're wanting to find it out there. You're looking in the wrong place. Your heart has a default setting, and have you noticed it yet? That's what Jesus wants them to see. Think about the ways we look at other people when they're having trouble with their kids. Uh, you're having trouble with your kids. I wonder what you're doing wrong as a parent. Having trouble in your business. I wonder what business practice you're not following. You're having trouble with your marriage. I wonder how you're not keeping good Christian values at home. See, we do it. And Jesus is telling us, you need to be careful because what you're saying to them is they deserve to have a tower fall on them. You deserve to have a tower fall on you. And Jesus says, no. Or you begin to think, yeah, Jesus is nowhere to be found. No. 
Where is it you struggle with that? Do you see it? Do you see how prominent it is in your life and in my life? It's important to know here that Jesus is also not saying that sometimes the physical things and the difficulties we experienced are related to our sins. We see evidence of that in Scripture too. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, they were killed by the Holy Spirit because they lied. We see Moses, when he sinned against the people in Israel and struck the rock, the Lord said, you can't go to the promised land. There was a consequence. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, his child from that marriage, that initial encounter died. And then so, there is consequences sometimes, but they're easy to see the connection. But we don't see tragedies and automatically say, what'd you do wrong? It shows us our reflexes, but it also shows us more. It shows us our assignments. Tragedies, the Lord uses them to show us our assignments. What is that? There's two of them. The assignment to ditch and the assignment to develop. The assignment to ditch and the assignment to develop. Where do we see those? One, beginning in verse 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He repeats that again. In verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent. There's the word, repent or you will perish. Or you're going to die too. What he's saying is you need to repent. That's turn away from, to ditch certain ways of thinking and living and acting and what you say. All these things that you are doing that are against the Lord's call, that are against his commandments. You need to ditch them and you need to run to the Lord. But think for a second who he's talking to. He's not talking to those who are in the midst of suffering from the tower falling on them. He's talking to those who are doing well in life. They're not suffering. Things are going well for them. They've just heard the news of what's going on. So Jesus is actually talking to people who are healthy and well. And what's he telling them to do? To repent. You need to ditch these things that are going on in your own life. He's not directly addressing sufferers. If you're directly suffering here today, I want you to know that there are passages that you need to run to, that the Lord Jesus wants you to hear. Passages like Psalm 23, that he is your shepherd, even in the midst of the dark valley. Psalm 46, that even though the world's falling apart, your Lord is with you and he's in control. Psalm 121, lift up your eyes to the mountains. Where does your help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Romans 5, that you're going through suffering. He's at work. Those are the passages if you're in the middle of suffering right now. But if you're not and you're like me, Jesus is telling you and me in the midst of our health and our goodness and our obedience to the Lord, he's saying you need to ditch the things in your life, the things in your heart that are against what I've called you to do. You see what Jesus, he's radically shaking things up. He's saying, when you do evil, you need to repent. When things are going well, you need to repent. What? Yes, when things are going, when you've done wicked things, you need to repent. When you've done wonderful things, you still need to repent. Why? It's one of the things that George Whitfield said is, we Christians often need to repent of the evil of their own righteousness. You see what happens? is we begin to think, take the initial part of the first point, we think someone suffers because they deserve to have a tower fall on them because they did something wrong. 
we don't think we deserve to have a tower fall on us because we're doing the right things. I'm good. I can think of a time in my life, multiple times in fact, but one time in particular when I was meeting with a wife in a church, another church, and she was telling me about how her husband, who had been nominated, he had been nominated to be an officer as a deacon. He got mad that he was nominated to be a deacon and not an elder because he said, I'm an elder, I'm an elder material, and I can't believe you wouldn't nominate me as such. He wasn't nominated that way. He didn't accept the nomination to deacon. But what came out a little bit later is that he was physically abusive with his wife. And he was horribly verbally abusive with his children. And most people in the church didn't see it because it was hidden very well. And I remember being informed of all the things that he had done. And even he had admitted most of it. And I'll tell you, friends, in my heart, sitting there in my study, I'm not proud of it, but I wanted a tower to fall on him. I thought, how dare you, in the name of Jesus, treat your family this way? Acting as if you think you're elder material and you're abusing horribly your family. May a tower fall on you. That's in my heart. I am not proud of it. And I thank you, Lord, that I don't do that in my home. You see what I did? Thank you, Lord, that I don't deserve a tower to fall on me. That's what Jesus is telling me to repent of. I deserve it too. Maybe not for that reason, but for others. He's saying we need to ditch and repent of the good that we're putting our hope in, thinking I'm okay. But we also need to develop. You see what he's talking about in verses 6 and 7? He begins the parable. Right after that describing of what's happening with the, the, the tragedies, he brings this bookend of a parable where he says, a man had planted a fig tree in his vineyard, and he was looking for fruit. And he says, there isn't any. He talks about it in verse 7, or verse 6, There's, I found no fruit. I've been looking for three years for fruit, and I find none. You need to cut it down. So what's the fruit that's there? If you've been in the church a while, you know that fruit means the behavior, the thoughts, the words, the actions that Christians do in their lives outwardly that demonstrate that the gospel is at work in their life. There's evidence that Jesus has touched me and my life is different. I approach money differently. I approach my time differently. I approach my work differently as I lead people at work. I approach many things differently And there's evidence of it. And he says, if there's no evidence, you may profess Jesus, but there's no evidence of the gospel really transforming you. There's no fruit. It's time to cut it down after three years of waiting. You need to develop fruit in your life because we need to ask ourselves, am I pursuing faithfulness in my life? Am I doing the things that demonstrate there's evidence of grace in me? Think about what you and I are often obsessed with pursuing. We're obsessed with pursuing our psychological needs. Am I validated or not? Am I affirmed or not? Do I receive the love and respect I think I deserve and it's owed to me? Is that there? Or we pursue our personal rights, thinking this is what I deserve, being who I am and where I live. 
Or we want to pursue productivity. I need to be the best and get the most done that I can. Or my social cause, whatever it may be, is it making traction? Are people seeing it? Are we making a dent in this society? Or maybe it's just sports of some kind, football or soccer, NASCAR, whatever it may be, something where it's just like, I just pour myself into it and I got to know as much as I can about it, or it's the legacy that I live or I leave. We're obsessed with some things, but are we asking ourselves, am I pursuing the development of fruit in my life? Do people even know that I'm a believer, not just because I go to church, but because there's so many other evidences in life. See, tragedies show us our assignment. We need to ditch things in our lives that are sinful before the Lord, and we need to develop the fruit that He has given us through His gracious salvation and say, I want there to be evidence. Am I doing everything to cultivate the ground of my heart to make it fruitful? I know what some of you might be thinking right now. Oh, this is great. I came to church and I was told I need to feel guilty for all the wrong things that I've done and I need to repent. And now I'm told I need to feel guilty for all the right things I've done and I need to repent. This is fantastic. I'm so glad I showed up. That's why Jesus reminds us again of his devotion. Do you see it? He shows us our assignment. He shows us our reflexes. But do you see his devotion? We see it two ways. He's devoted to stay and he's devoted to preserve. Do you see his devotion to stay? Look again at verse 6. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree implanted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And, in the next verse, he said to the vineyard, to the vine dresser, look, I planted it yesterday, and now I'm here, and I don't see any fruit. That's not what it said, is it? I've been looking for fruit for how long? Years. I've been looking for years. You see his commitment the commitment to stay, the commitment to persevere, the commitment to be patient. He is devoted to being amazingly patient with you and with me. For three years, I've been coming repeatedly. Is there fruit? Give it more time. Is there fruit? Give it more time. Is there fruit? Give it more time. And then he says, it's not there. See, the, what he's showing us here is he's devoted to stay with us even when we're not being as fruitful as we're called to be and as he wants us to be. He says, I'm not leaving you. I'm here. I'm not going to run away. I'm patient with you. Think about how you and I look at our lives and we see all the things we shouldn't have done and all the things we didn't do that we were supposed to do. Have you and I even received the discipline for a fourth of those things for all the ways that we have stolen time at work, we've snuck away early or we wasted time doing something else other than work. Think of all the times we've ripped apart a driver driving on 77 on our way to Charlotte. And we've just ripped apart their character in our hearts as they've driven differently than we would. Or think about the ways we've assassinated the character of someone sitting in the pew with us in church. Think about the ways that we speak foolishly because we speak without understanding anything. We think we know it all. 
And yet we just blab our opinion as if we think we're wise enough to understand all the details. Have you or I experienced even a fourth of the discipline we deserve? No. He's been so, so patient. He's devoted to being patient with us. He tells Moses that. In Exodus 34, he says, The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate. What else? Slow to anger and abounding in love. He says, in the midst of this, I'm going to be with you. But not only that, I'm going to preserve you. I'm not just going to stay with you. I'm going to preserve you. That's where the vine dresser comes in. And he says um, in verse 8, and he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also unless I dig, until I dig around it and put on manure. He's saying, I want to come alongside and I want to help this tree to grow and to flourish and I'm going to be at work. I'm devoted to preserving it as long as possible, to seeing it flourish. I'm going to tend the soil. He knows what's needed. He knows we can't do it. And he says, I'm going to take care of you too. I'm going to make you fruitful. Be careful. This isn't a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. It's not God the Father as the landowner and God the Son is the vine dresser. That would give us a tension that doesn't exist in the Bible. The Lord is mean and wicked and he wants to hurt those who aren't productive fast enough. And Jesus is compassionate and loving. He says, give him more time, Dad, please. That's not what's happening because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God loved and he sent his own Son to rescue us. This is a discussion between God's justice and God's mercy. God himself and himself, they deserve justice, but I'm going to give them patience. But he's letting us know, be sober, because the day will come when justice will come. The tower will fall. Will you be ready? All of us will have a tower fall, without a doubt. But remember, I'm devoted to your rescue. Usha Bista was a Nepali woman who set out to climb Mount Everest, And at 27,000 feet, she developed severe altitude sickness. Her brain began to swell, and she was semi-conscious, and she had cerebral edema, fluid on the brain. The party she was climbing with saw that she was likely to die. And so what did they do? They left her there to die as they continued with their goal of summiting Mount Everest. They knew it was too late for her. So they carried on. After she was there for a while and she was continuing to deteriorate, Megan McGrath was coming down from summiting Mount Everest and she saw Usha there. And she sat with her and she started to share her oxygen with her and she tried to help her but she couldn't do it by herself. And then another hiker who was descending from his summit, David Hahn and his Sherpa, came across the couple, and they too began to share their oxygen, and they picked up Usha, and they began to carry her down and share all their resources and take her down to the South Coal camp until she could get medical treatment. Usha couldn't do it. She was abandoned. She was alone. She had no hope, but the devotion of those three hikers and their resources to carry her to safety And restoration is what gave her life. Dear friends, that's what Jesus is telling us here is we are in trouble. 
our hearts are in danger. We need to repent of the sin that we do and we need to repent of our self-righteousness. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are devoted to making sure that we grow. Left to ourselves, we die. With Jesus and the Spirit and the Father, we live. The tower will fall. You and I deserve it. He's calling us to repent. Where do you need to do it? Help me to do it. Let's cry out for help. Pray with me. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would have mercy upon us. Help us to hear these words and to be changed. Help us to know that all that we have has come from your hand and it is good. Forgive us for our self-righteousness and for the ways that we criticize you and criticize others, but we're so slow to criticize ourselves. Cultivate in us. Dig up the soil around our hearts. Pour the gospel fertilizer upon us that we might flourish with fruit. We need you. If you don't do it, we have no hope. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone says together, amen. Let's stand together and sing of the love that will not let us go.